This is an interview with Colonel Pete Knight at Patterson Air Force Base, Ohio, on 10th of May, 1979. Um, before I start, could I, um, could you give me an idea of the sort of um, flying experience you had that led up to the the X-15? Um, did you fly any of the the X-1s or? No, I didn't. I didn't fly any of the uh, X-1s. I. Uh went to the test pilot school in 58, started in September of 58, and graduated in April of 59, and stayed right at Edwards uh, as a Air Force test pilot, mm. and worked on a number of programs uh, through 59, 60, and sometime in the 1960 time period, uh, of course, uh, there were a couple of space programs uh, in being, and one of them was the dinosaur mm -hmm. that you see here, yeah. the X-20. And uh, there were people who were flying the X-15, and the dinosaur or the X-20 was to be the next Air Force research program, etc., that was a follow-on. And there were four Air Force pilots uh, picked to participate in that program at the time, of which I was one of them. And we worked that program from 1960 till 1963. The dinosaur was subsequently canceled on December the 10th, 1963. And so even while we were working on dinosaur, we tried to maintain our proficiency as a working test pilot in order for us to, to have that kind of pro proficiency when it came time to fly this vehicle, mm. because it was a winged vehicle, mm. and of course the earlier flights were to be suborbital, and in fact there were to be a number of flights that were rather similar to the X-15. Uh, what what um, aircraft were you flying when you were test flying there, the early century series? Uh, yes. Uh, we maintained proficiency in uh, 104s, uh, 38s, 100s, and T-33s uh, during that time, plus what other test programs that might come along that involved other airplanes. Uh, for example, uh, I was the first military to fly the YAT-28E, which was a turboprop T-28. Oh, yeah. uh, that was a program that was going yeah. on. So. We kept our hand in normal test flying and uh, also worked the dinosaur and of course there was a simulator being developed for the dinosaur and we spent a great deal of time in that, uh, going back and forth to Boeing, Seattle, and to the various other subcontractors uh, associated with dinosaur. And dinosaur presumably got reincarnated in the form of the shuttle now, hasn't it? Uh, uh, essentially, uh, we said at the time uh, that it was cancelled that it the cycle would be at least 10 years before they would do anything with a winged vehicle in space mm. again. Mm. And we missed it a little bit. Uh, mm. But uh, essentially it's a very similar, different size, uh, different mission, and mm. uh, so forth. Although even the dinosaur had a thousand pound payload, or a thousand, 75 cubic feet and a thousand pound payload capacity mm. Mm. behind the cockpit. So it, it did have a significant capability. In fact, we had it mocked up at one time mm. that it could carry four passengers besides the pilot and all in full pressure suits mm. and supported uh, from a life support point of view. Mm. So it did have some uh, payload capability, mm. various configurations that we had worked with. 
And that was to be launched on a Titan II, wasn't it? Yes, it started out uh, as the initial program that it was going to be launched off of an Atlas and go downrange only, mm -hmm. uh, which would go from uh, Cape uh, Canaveral at the time to the various islands, and the final landing would be in Fortaleza, Brazil, which was a significant uh, distance. Mm -hmm. And uh, oh, I forget uh, some of the islands, but we had in fact looked at the uh, landing strips on the various islands mm -hmm. and evaluated uh, those as to the capability of accepting the dinosaur. And then as the program progressed, we moved from missile to missile and finally ended up on a Titan III. Mm -hmm. Then uh, once we got the missile that was capable of throwing that kind of weight, uh, we decided uh, that it would be better to go orbital on the first flight rather than the suborbital flight and have to accept the, the maneuvering required uh, to get into the various landing strips on that kind of a downrange mm. operation. Mm. So it was, by the time the program canceled, we were in the orbital mode, and the first flight would have been, uh, I think, three orbits. Yeah, yeah. Going back to the X-15, um, what sort of conversion did you have onto it? I suppose you were thrown in at the deep end, where you? Were well, what I was trying to build up to was yeah. after the uh, X-15 canceled, then uh, the dinosaur, you mean? <coughs> I mean the dinosaur. Yeah. Uh, then I went back into the uh, test pilot school and completed the uh, aerospace research pilot phase uh, of the program. And that was in January of '64, and then uh, came out in June, July of '64, uh, and uh, worked a couple of programs, and then was assigned to the X-15. Uh, so I. That kind of background uh, uh, led to uh, the X-15, a number of airplanes, a number of programs, and, uh, you know, uh, five years as a test pilot uh, mm. working various kinds of uh, programs led to the uh, qualification for the X-15. Well, your first flight on the X-15, did it have roughly the same flight envelope that you'd experienced, say, on a 104? No. No, very definitely not. Uh, we used the 104 as a trainer to develop the landing uh, patterns and to develop a proficiency in that kind of a landing operation, uh, the dead stick landing on the lake beds, uh, low L over D uh, approaches, and so forth. But the first flight in the X-15, of course, was a powered flight, and it was a Mach 4 flight. Uh, lighting the rocket engine and coming back to minimum thrust, uh, long acceleration up to Mach 4, and a very short flight from, uh, I forget the name of the lake bed uh, that we launched from, Del Mar, I believe. Mm. Uh, or it could have been Silver Lake, I forget now, but a relatively short flight, a uh, couple hundred miles. And uh, uh, very minimal requirements, uh, primarily uh, uh, to understand the total operation, to at least have gone through a flight and to experience the landing uh, and so forth. Uh, that, in essence, was the last free flight uh, that we mm. had. Uh, mm. Everybody who checked out in the airplane got essentially one free flight. Uh, but it was still a, a significant jump in uh, envelope over any jet airplane mm. that anybody had ever flown.
uh, at that time, Mach 2 uh, was about as fast as uh, most airplanes uh, were going. The B-70 was coming along and would mm. do Mach 3. And, of course, we didn't know about uh, the SR or the YF-12 yet. Mm. Uh, so, you know, Mach 4 is a significant jump, although yeah. Mach 4 is not uh, a significantly high Mach number for the X-15. I was going to ask you, as far as handling qualities were concerned, was Mark IV on the X-15 roughly the same as Mark II in, in the 104? No, probably. Uh, the airplane felt uh, a lot better. Even at the higher Mark numbers, the X-15 felt better and handled uh, as good as probably the 104 or any other airplane subsonically. Uh, mm -hmm. It was a very, very good flying airplane, uh, had... Uh, very good handling qualities. However, you must remember that uh, there was not the same kind of maneuvering associated with the X-15 that you might do with an F-100 or uh, an F-104. Yeah. Uh, you know, mm -hmm. we didn't loop roll and spin the X-15. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It was uh, rather mild maneuvering. Anyway. Uh, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. But it did. Uh, it was a very, very good handling airplane. Uh, exhibited good. Uh, Good handling qualities, and uh, in fact, all three of the airplanes were a little bit different. Mm -hmm. uh, the number one airplane remained pretty much the basic X-15 as it was originally produced. Uh, however, we did add experiments and so forth uh, to use the airplane, and the X-15 did have a uh, a payload compartment which was uh, rather small. Uh, mm. which was behind the cockpit. And we could uh, get experiments uh, to high speeds and to high altitudes and uh, so forth. The number two airplane uh, had an accident at Mud Lake early in the program, uh, I would say 61 or two, as I remember, uh, forget now. At that time, the decision was made to modify the airplane to accept the external tanks and to also incorporate uh, the ramjet, the scramjet, yeah. on the lower ventral. And the airplane at that time was designated as a low-altitude airplane, primarily to pro provide a, a platform and a, uh, a base from which to gather data to support uh, scramjet development mm. uh, in a real-time environment. You had to be low enough to get air to feed the ramp yes. anyway. Yeah. And mm -hmm. uh, so the airplane was extended three feet. Mm -hmm. uh, there was a, a plug put in the airplane uh, somewhere in the middle. Yes. And that would allow us uh, the volume to provide fuel to the scramjet, mm -hmm. which was, mm -hmm. as I remember, going to be uh, hydrogen. Yeah. And uh, the external tanks, and of course there is another tank on the back, uh, which provided additional uh, gas uh, pressurization and mm -hmm. so forth mm -hmm. for the tanks for the added yeah. uh, feed. The windows were changed uh, to an oval shape uh, because of the high temperatures and the rectangular windows associated with the basic airplane. Yeah. Those corners. Uh, oh yes. Would uh, with the high temperatures mm -hmm. cause stress uh, points. That's and the one in Washington, isn't it? The first one in the, in the yes. The number yeah. one is in uh, the Smithsonian in Washington. The yeah. number two is over here. Yeah, yeah. And of course, because we were uh, going to the higher Mach numbers, uh, we were going to exceed the the temperature limits on the airplane. Mm. Mm. 
And with the external tanks, we actually made a three-stage vehicle out of it, the B-52 being the first stage, mm. get us to 45,000. Then the external tanks would take us to Mach 2 and 70,000 feet. And then from that point, we would have a full load of internal fuel mm. and be able to accelerate to Mach 8, uh, presumably. And you jettisoned the externals at 70,000? Yes, yeah. we jettisoned yeah. the external tanks at uh, 70,000 and Mach 2, yeah. and a Q limit and an angle of attack limit. Mm -hmm. And uh, then, uh, because we were going to exceed the temperatures going on to Mach 8, uh, we had to cover the airplane with an ablative material. Mm. The leading edges of the wings, the vertical, uh, the horizontal, and the front of the canopy were all molded and glued on mm. as a high-density material. Then we sprayed the airplane with the material up to the thickness, uh, and the thickness varied uh, anywhere from a quarter of an inch, I think, back on the back where the temperatures would be lower to some of the... <coughs> higher temperatures on the <clears throat> lower part of the nose and uh, wings <coughs> to some three-quarters of an inch maximum thickness, as I mm. remember. And then, as we began to uh, fly the airplane and look at, at what happens to that material, we found out that as the material ablated and would come off of the nose, it would stick to the window and make mm. the window opaque. So we had to have visibility in order to land the airplane, so what we did was put an eyelid over the left-hand window, and for launch you would use the right window for mm -hmm. visibility if you needed uh, that kind of uh, mm -hmm. visibility. As you went to the higher Mach numbers and the right window became opaque, then you would slow down and below Mach 4 we could open the left-hand window and have a clear window and hope the lake bed was on the left side. I was going to say, you had a left-hand yeah, traffic pattern. Yeah, uh, make a left-hand <laughs> traffic. Well, all the patterns were left-handed anyway. Yeah, but, yeah. Uh, then we could look out the left side and, and land mm. the airplane. Uh, as you can see, the visibility on the X-15 was considerably cut down as we evolved into the program. Mm. Mm. These are both uh, scale, and you can see the difference oh, yes. in the uh, yeah. length of the airplane. And in fact, the lower ventral, you see, was cut off. Yeah. And uh, this is, this one shows the detachable or jettisonable lower mm, ventral. Mm, mm. This one has that removed and also cut a portion of it off yeah. in order to mount the... Uh, so you had less control in your on that one? Well, but really that lower ventral was for the high angles of attack during re-entry. Oh, mm, so for mm. the high speed flights mm. and the relatively uh, low altitudes... Uh, yeah we were still in very good shape as far as directional stability. Your uh, part of the assignment was really the speed part. You, you, you didn't get all that high, comparatively speaking. I did altitude flights. I flew all three airplanes, yeah. and uh, we rotated uh, through them as the program uh, phased down in the last couple of years. There were only two of us flying the airplanes, mm. and that was Bill Dana and myself. And I was going to do the build-up uh, in the demonstration of the high Mach number uh, airplane. And then after I did that, then Bill would come along and he would start increasing uh, in Q mm. uh, and opening up the envelope. Mm. But even so, with the airplanes that we had running, we both alternated and flew all of the airplanes, although Bill never flew this one. Yeah. Uh, so as far as on the speed side, you've gone up to, what is it, Mach 6.7? 6.7. 
experience. And that was the really hot flight, wasn't it? Mm -hmm. Yeah. We burnt the, the lower ventral off. Yeah. And uh, what happened was that in the uh, modification uh, of the lower ventral, they did not have a molded uh, piece of ablative that they could put on that leading edge, mm. such as was molded and glued on the leading edges of mm. the other surfaces. So what they did as an alternate was take that material and they troweled it on and shaped it mm. around there. But uh, that turned out to be uh, unsatisfactory in the fact that uh, the shockwave interference off of the scramjet and other portions of the airplane ate through that mm. material and once it it got through the material, it eroded it all off. Mm. And then it burnt through the ventral and it came out both sides, just like you took a blowtorch and uh, opened it up. Heat got up into the engine bay and uh, we also had some heat get up into the flap area. Mm. And so I didn't have any flaps uh, on that landing. And we could not jettison all the fuel on that landing because it got up in, uh, to the engine and uh, ate away some of the jettison lines. Uh, so what speed did you come in at on that? At the end well, of that with the increased weight of the airplane and uh, the ablative changing uh, the aerodynamics a little bit, uh, we assessed it as opposed to a normal traffic pattern of 300 knots that we would up this one to 350 knots. Mm -hmm. So I flew the whole pattern in this airplane at 350 knots. What we're really talking about is high-speed gliding, isn't it, in this stage? Oh, I mean, yeah. you, burnt all, you burnt your fuel off, effectively. Yeah. Um, uh, I know the technique of gliding. I've done practice forced landings, um, or precautionary landings, as the instructor calls them. Right. But uh, this is very much a high-speed precautionary landing, so you've got to get all your, your coordinates set up very accurately. Yeah, the difference is that, uh, of course, when you're talking about uh, doing it in a normal flying or even a, a century series fighter, which we do dead stick landings in, the difference is that when you do it in a normal fighter, it is an emergency. When you do it in the, the X-15, it's planned. Mm. And so, therefore, it's not as much of an emergency, and it mm. is not that much more of a difficult job, although the... The emphasis and uh, <coughs> the uh, uh, motivation and uh, the judgment and anxieties associated with it are all pretty high because you, you still only have one chance. Mm. Uh, you either make that one or you blow it. Mm. Mm. Yeah. During the whole program, uh, I think uh, that NASA has data to indicate that from a planned touchdown point, all of the 199 flights, I think we could put it within that planned touchdown point uh, within plus or minus 1,000 feet. And you'll find that that's, most of the data is probably down within less than plus or minus 500 feet. There is some scatter out to plus or minus 1,000 mm. feet, but uh, fairly accurate. You, you, you had pretty stable wind conditions then at Edwards, did you? No, not all the time. Uh, Did you encounter shear a lot in this when you came in? <coughs> no, not uh, not that much. Mm -hmm. uh, it gets pretty windy at Edwards, but uh, we tried to limit uh, the flights to less than 25 knots. Mm -hmm. And not so much for the airplane considerations as much as for 
any emergencies in the event you had to bail out. Mm. If you then hit that desert and all of that sagebrush and so forth with a 25 knot wind uh, until you got that parachute deflated, mm. Uh, mm. you did a lot of dragging over that desert. Yeah, yeah. And uh, it wasn't uh, wasn't too good. Yeah, I noticed you, you had an ejector seat in this um, yes. aircraft. Now, the ejection sequence, if you had to use it, you, you'd blow the whole hood off, would you? Yes. In uh, which case, you had no windscreen to protect you until you... No. Yeah. But you see, you were in a full-pressure suit, yeah. and uh, it was a specially designed uh, ejection seat. Uh, the uh, armrests uh, came up and over and locked you in, and uh, you also had... Uh, uh, spurs on your feet similar to what they use in a 104 that pulled your feet back and held them. Mm -hmm. And you were also in a full body restraint system uh, a little bit more uh, restrictive than the standard uh, lap belt and shoulder harness. Mm -hmm. And also the seat was stabilized. Uh, we had telescoping rods uh, that came out the back and there were small fins that unfolded and stabilized uh, the seat uh, significantly more than a standard open seat ejection mm -hmm. uh, of uh, Century Series. Uh, the seat was supposed to be good for at least Mach 4 and 120,000 feet. Really? So, however... And, and your face mask was strong enough for that kind of... Yeah, the full yeah. pressure suit uh, should be good for about 1,000 Q. Mm -hmm. And that's what those numbers equate to. Mm -hmm. uh, and we had demonstrated that on a sled test. When you say 1,000 Q, what's that in? in the dynamic pressure. Um, pounds per square foot. Pounds per square, per square foot. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And uh, the suit was so designed uh, for uh, the open seat ejection. Uh, we had the basic full pressure suit, and then we put on what we call a sacrifice garment, and that was the silver part of the suit that you see in pictures. Uh, in fact, uh, you can see it here. Yeah. Uh, that uh, was if you ejected at those high temperatures or high Mach numbers, uh, that part of the suit would probably tear away and uh, absorb was some of the... material then? Essentially, yeah. uh, absorb some of the energy. Mm. And we figured also if you ejected at some of the higher Mach numbers, you may be subject to some burns because of the high temperatures, especially where your knees made the suit tight against your knee mm. and maybe your hands uh, where the gloves uh, fit. Mm -hmm. Once you had some distance between the suit and yourself, uh, you of course, air, air insulation, game. right? Yeah, but even uh, we accepted the minor burns and uh, so forth. Uh, yeah. <laughs> if that, in fact, nobody ever used the ejection seat. No. Um, on the, the controls, what what system of, of control surface movement did you have? Were they were they hydraulically powered? Yes, all hydraulic. Uh, we had uh, essentially uh, two control systems, uh, the aerodynamic systems and the reaction control systems for outside of the atmosphere. Mm -hmm. uh, we had three sticks in the airplane. We had a standard uh, center stick, then we had a right-hand uh, side stick controller, and then we had a left-hand side stick controller. Uh, <coughs> the center stick was thought to be used for normal flying. However, during the boost phase of the flight, uh, it was felt that you couldn't uh, fly the airplane accurately under those high longitudinal G-forces. And uh, so we went to the side stick 
which was supposed to be primarily for the boost phase, and uh, that was a two-axis pitch and roll, and then the rudder pedals for yaw. All three sticks controlled the same control surfaces? No. 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 Sorry, I'm jumping. <laughs> uh, the center stick and the right-hand stick did. Yep. They were interconnected, and they were dynamically balanced. Mm -hmm. Then it was thought after the boost phase, we would like to go back to the center stick and fly like a normal airplane. Uh, as it turned out, it became uh, apparent very quickly that we would rather fly with the side stick. And so it was thought and felt uh, a number of times that we could take the center stick out, but that would create complications because we'd have to rebalance the system, and it wasn't worth it because the center stick didn't bother anybody. And further, as it uh, evolved, it was uh, a good thing that we had to center stick in because under various emergencies, uh, such as an electrical failure or something like that, you couldn't trim mm. with the side stick. And so what you'd find yourself doing is using the center stick as gross inputs and then flying the airplane vernierly with the right-hand stick. And uh, so yeah. that worked out very yeah. well. Yeah. The left-hand side stick was a three-axis stick. Had roll, pitch, and yaw, mm. and that was for the reaction controls to control us where the aerodynamic surfaces were no longer effective. So on an altitude flight, uh, after you drop and rotate and start your exit, you would be flying with the aerodynamic control surfaces, and then as you begin to reduce in Q or the dynamic pressure and your aerodynamic surfaces lost their effectiveness, then you would transition and fly the rest of the mission with the left-hand stick. And then as you completed your trajectory and started your re-entry, once the, air, or the reaction controls were no longer as effective as they should, then you'd have to come in and start using the aerodynamic. And you would transition again to the right-hand stick to complete the mission and do the landing. Was, you, when you did your re-entry, um, was uh, setting up um, the aircraft so that it would aim straight as it started to hit Q again, was that a tricky problem? I mean, in an extreme case, you wouldn't want to hit it flat on at a high angle no. of attack, would you? Uh, no, it wasn't uh, that difficult. Uh, the presentations and the control systems were such that, that we could fly the airplane uh, very accurately. In fact, uh, some of the tracking missions... Uh, once outside the atmosphere required uh, that we establish a pitch attitude, a yaw attitude, and maybe a roll attitude, and hold that attitude for a period of time. And we could hold that within plus or minus a degree about all three axes. Mm. Mm. And that was to support some of the experiments that were being exposed behind the cockpit mm. for tracking purposes. And at that time you were in free fall, were you, effectively? Uh, we were in a, uh, a ballistic uh, trajectory. Mm. Yeah, zero yeah. G, and uh, mm. and and then um, uh, when your fuel's burned out and you're coming back to land and, and you're doing a dead stick landing, uh, you had what a, a, a an air-driven turbine to give you hydraulic power. We had uh, we had two APUs, we call them auxiliary power units. And uh, if you look at the picture, let me get a picture here. Steam engines, uh, essentially. Steam engines. Yeah, yeah. we run uh, peroxide over a silver catalyst and it produced uh, steam and water. Mm -hmm. Ran a little turbine about six inches in diameter, mm -hmm. put out about 30 horsepower. And each one of those, one on each side, ran a hydraulic pump and a generator. Mm. And the exhaust you can see on the top here. Yeah. See the exhaust? Those 
uh, exhaust ports are right behind a cockpit. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, in the other picture, you can I see I should have it. talked to you yesterday, because I, so, I, I went over yeah. the X-15 this morning. The, uh, you can see the exhaust uh, port on the, uh, this picture. Uh, it's a little black stub here. Oh, yes. Yeah. And that's the exhaust. Mm. The engine is just coming online, and we had just yeah. dropped. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. And did you have, this, have any dropout windmills as backup or not? No. 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 Those two APUs provided all of the hydraulic and all of the electrical power. Mm. Mm. When they quit, you didn't have anything. Yeah. And uh, I have had a flight where they both quit. <laughs> Can you tell me a bit about it? Well, it was... Uh, I was on an altitude flight, and uh, we had uh, dropped off of the uh, 52, and I had uh, rotated, the engine was lit, and as we hit about Mach 4, <coughs> and 102, 3, or 4,000 feet going up, the engine quit, a whole bunch of red lights came on in the cockpit, and a few seconds later, everything quit. The lights went out. The APU was had shut down, and I'm still going up <laughs> at the lower Mach 4. Gliding. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, of course, I, I don't know how high I'm going to go or what. So, in any event, uh, I knew that you couldn't start an APU for some 25 seconds after it shut down because it had to wind down uh, and reset before you could then fire it up again. So... As I was climbing and going over the top, I didn't know how high I was, so I really didn't know what angles of attack to... Well, you lost all your instrument readings. Oh, yeah, mm. everything. Mm. And uh, I still had reaction controls because they were mechanical and uh, still locked in. And uh, so as uh, things wound down and I began to assess what had happened... Uh, I got the emergency battery on and got one APU fired up. I didn't want to start a generator because I was afraid if I started a generator, that might shut the APU down again and I'd, I'd run out of time because I was going to have to make a re-entry here. And so I didn't want to complicate anything anymore. Once I got an APU running, that, that gave me control. Now we'll see what we can do. So I started setting up for the re-entry and I pull the airplane and get it up to an angle of attack to where it would start to slice off and uh, then back off just a little bit and so I do that continuously so that I could hold a maximum angle of attack not knowing what was required mm-hmm. and I finally made the, got the airplane into the atmosphere and once it picked up G then I held six G's until it arrested the re-entry and I came level and in the meantime I had found the lake bed that I was going to land at and of course they are all over the, the range and they're planned as to which one you'll use in the event mm. that the engine shuts down at some particular time yeah. and so I started a turn back to the lake bed and uh, was able to get it onto uh, Mud Lake but uh, a rather scary uh, mm. flight uh, yeah. I think that's the only time uh, in my life that I figured uh, I wasn't going to make it. Uh, really? 
And I can remember looking down... You could have uh, ejected, I suppose. I mean, that, no. Well, I didn't... You see, I was above Mach 4, and I was certainly over 120,000 feet. Yeah. Uh, max altitude get up to about 180,000. Mm. And, and once you uh, come down to lower altitude, you could have got out, could you? Oh, after I had regained control. Yeah. But yeah. you see, if I hadn't have got an APU running, and I couldn't have arrested the the sink rate uh, or the re-entry perfected mm. or performed the re-entry I would have known what Mach number yeah. or uh, what conditions so in any event I didn't think I was going to make it yeah. because this whole control system I mean it, it should have been obvious to me when you talk about APUs they're really PUs they're not auxiliary because, that's right um, you can't take a hydraulic feed off a rocket motor can you like you can no. on a gas turbine no no mechanical energy no. available no. That's something that never occurred to me, but it's a fascinating yeah. thought. Yeah. Mm. yeah. What is the, is the the greatest height you hit on on, on those flights? On my flight, uh, is the maximum flights I got to was two hundred eighty thousand. Mm -hmm. mm. The airplane has actually gone to three hundred fifty four thousand. Yeah. Joe Walker holds that record, and I hold uh, the two uh, latest speed records. Mm. The airplane was not performance limited uh, to three hundred fifty thousand. We figured uh, that we could probably have gotten the airplane to somewhere in the neighborhood of uh, 500,000. But then uh, the re-entry becomes extremely critical. In the event you would have gotten to one of those altitudes and lost any of your augmentation systems, your stability augmentation, then the re-entry would have been extremely critical. You still had your reaction. Yeah. yeah, but once you begin to pick up uh, Q and the dynamics of uh, damping and so, and so yeah. forth associated with an aerodynamic airplane, yeah. at those high angles of attack and high Mach numbers, uh, the stability goes to hell. Mm -hmm. So, so the re-entry would have been very difficult. On 374,000, you haven't quite lost contact with your Q reference. Oh, yes. You have? Oh, yes. So what's uh, comparatively easy about bringing a ship in from 374 or whatever it is and not 500,000? The, the comparison is <coughs> in the event you lose one of your stability augmentation uh, axes. Mm -hmm. uh, in other words, the stability of the airplane degrades as you go up an angle of attack. Yeah. And from the higher altitudes, you need a higher angle of attack in order to affect the re-entry before you get too deep in the atmosphere and get to a too high a temperature. Mm. So you would have had to re-enter at the very, very high angles of attack, approaching the stability limits of the airplane. Yeah. There is a region in there where the stability augmentation system will compensate for that. Mm. Mm. But if you lose that, mm. then you have to do it manually, and at those poor stability conditions, it becomes very difficult. So it's the higher angles of attack required from the higher altitudes mm. that cause you the problem. Mm. Mm. Can you just give me some, some personal Im impressions now? Not so much, um, you know, we've talked about a lot of very interesting technicalities, but um, your sort of physical impressions of a flight. I mean, you're, you're, you're latched down into this very cramped cockpit. You can't turn your head. Um, you get into the plane on the ground because you're pylon mounted on the B-52. Um, how do you react as a human being in that situation? Well, I don't think uh, those kinds of things have uh, as much effect uh, as the total mission in knowing what the what the probabilities are <coughs> and the possibilities of things going wrong that you can't compensate for, can't correct. 
the cockpit was very roomy. Uh, the cockpit appears to be cramped because the windows are close to your head and you're up in the, the window, mm. but once you get down into the cockpit, it was very, very roomy mm. compared to, say, the 104 mm. uh, cockpit. Uh, that was a smaller cockpit. Uh, but as far as uh, claustrophobic tendencies or anything like that, because you're strapped in and you're in a full-pressure suit and you're in the cockpit, that's not much different than being in a normal airplane. Uh, but the anxieties of uh, the and the unknowns associated with what you're doing is is more unnerving than anything. Mm. Uh, anybody that says that they didn't have a certain amount of fear and a certain amount of anxieties on any flight uh, really didn't understand what was going on. Mm. Mm. Uh, <clears throat> very, very few flights, if any, did everything go exactly as planned. Uh, in fact, almost every flight was an emergency of some sort. Mm. So. Fear, yes. Uh, Respect uh, for what was being done and respect for the machine and uh, where you were going with the machine was uh, certainly there all the time. Mm. When you did this this really fast run at Mark 6 Plus, did you have any real sensation of speed? Yes, you begin to... Most airplanes uh, that are designed for a maximum Mach number just as a car... Uh, a car, a uh, standard automobile will run at, uh, you know, 80 miles an hour fairly easily. Mm. And you feel that you have a pretty good control over it. Uh, if you take that same road car, mm. standard, and start running it out to 110, 120 miles an hour on the same kinds of roads, you begin to feel that you're pushing that car and you're pushing the handling qualities and you're pushing all of the systems and you're not quite sure or you don't feel as comfortable as if you were back down around 70 or 80. I think uh, that the X-15 exhibited the same kinds of uh, qualities. Airplanes do the same thing, even a Mach 2 airplane. It runs very well subsonically. It runs very well at 1.2, 1.3 Mach number. You start to get it out to 2, 2, 1, 2, 2, and you begin to feel that you're pushing the airplane. Yeah. How is this manifested? Buffett and... Um, no, not necessarily Buffett, but just the solidness of the airplane, uh, the, the, the stability. You can sense and feel stability in an airplane. You're on uh, a bit of a tightrope. Yeah, mm. and uh, the X-15 was, was good for Mach 5, 5.5, 6. Uh, as we begin to push it out uh, above 6.5, you could begin to feel that, that, yeah, you're pushing the airplane. Mm. Uh, mm. I don't think we had reached any limit, uh, but uh, it would have been uh, it would have been uh, an interesting flight going uh, on out to Mach eight. Mm-hmm. Nevertheless, uh, there, there was a fair bit of spin-off from this program, wasn't there? I mean, I'm thinking oh, yes. in terms of ablative techniques and um, uh, attitude control for re-entry and this sort of thing. Uh, control systems, uh, materials. Uh, heat transfer uh, uh, validations. Uh, most of the uh, heat transfer equations that we use were empirical, and we then uh, validated those through actual flight and found out that our analysis and most of our equations uh, were pretty good. Mm. The materials. Uh, data that we got uh, was significant. Reentry uh, uh, 
conditions, uh, the physiological stresses on the human being uh, were defined. Uh, on most of the flights, we were instrumented uh, physiologically, uh, heart rate, uh, respiratory rate, so forth. And uh, the uh, stability and control of uh, hypersonic vehicles, significant amount of data uh, on those uh, flights. How do you think the, these flying experiences affected you as a person, you know, both, both during the time you were flying the program and, and then once you've left it? Uh, were you a difficult person to live with from your wife's point of view? Or no, I don't think so. <laughs> uh, were you no, a relaxed uh, person between flights? Oh, yes. Uh, you know, it was a job and uh, one that certainly we were uh, very enthused about, uh, certainly volunteered for, certainly the the epitome of uh, your particular job and profession and it was you know a, a pretty big plum to be uh, essentially the chief air force test pilot doing this kind of work uh, if flying and test flying uh, was that strenuous and you really couldn't cope with it then certainly you didn't want to get into this thing oh. but uh, to our way of thinking it was an extension of what we were already doing in the ultimate in going to the top in your profession and being recognized within the field as a, an experienced test pilot. Mm. So, mm. no, uh, I, uh, in fact, uh, you know, after the first flight uh, and uh, you begin to understand the machine with which you're going to be involved now and uh, the more you know about it, the more confidence you have and the more confidence you have in yourself, yourself in being able to cope with any contingencies that might happen, uh, then it's it's the, pretty much the same as any normal test program. Mm -hmm. uh, as far as being able to sleep the night before, uh, no, that was no problem. Because mm -hmm. uh, they're often several months apart, these flights. Oh, they? yes. Yeah. yes. Mm. And then sort of, what, five minutes of crisis and then another couple of months of waiting. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, usually, uh, in order to get one flight off of the hooks or to have a launch from the B-52, it probably took anywhere from three to five aborts. Mm -hmm. We went through a normal countdown, uh, normal checklist, uh, as you have seen with Gemini, Mercury, and Apollo. In fact, some of their control rooms were uh, taken off of the X-15 extensions, and uh, we had the same kind of an operation. We had a X-15 pilot as a controller, and he was the one I communicated with, and uh, everything was uh, as a function of time, and uh, take off, go to a point, turn around, and you had to launch over a dry lake bed, very similar to the one you were going to land at. Mm. In the event the engine didn't light, you had to have some place to go. Mm. So that meant that you had to be a spot in the sky in order to be able to make that lake bed. Uh, so it was very critical. That window was uh, less than a couple of miles. Yeah. And all controlled by radar in the control room. Uh, we had a high range that went from uh, Salt Lake City all the way back down to Edwards mm -hmm. uh, with mm -hmm. uh, tracking stations along the way. Mm -hmm. And uh, they could feed uh, then information into the control room and advise us as to mm -hmm. where we were. And they monitored our flight, uh, both track make sure that we didn't get too far astray so that we missed the lake bed. And also they could uh, monitor our altitude and all of our subsystems. Mm, mm. 
although there was nothing they could do in terms of providing any control or any, they didn't have any automatic systems that they could work from the ground. It all had to be done by the pilot. Yeah, uh, yeah. Did, did you have uh, multi-channel telemetry in those days? Yes. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And in the case of an abort, I mean, was it a problem for the B-52 to come down with a fully loaded no. F-15 on its wing? No, we would jettison uh, the fuel out of the X-15. Yeah. And uh, no, there was no problem in landing. Because it's about the same all that weight as a hound dog, isn't it? They used to carry a pair empty, of uh, The basic airplane empty was about 15,000, 16,000 pounds. Yeah. Mm. And uh, that airplane, fully loaded in that configuration, was 53,000 pounds, mm. thereabouts. So it's a three to one fuel shell ratio. Uh, almost, isn't it? Just about. Yeah. Hmm. Do, you, do you miss flying now? I mean, do you still keep your hand in? I fly once in a while. I fly any time anybody will let me or any time <laughs> I have a good reason. What do they let you still get your hands on? Well, I, uh, I fly an F-5 uh, once in a while. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And uh, up until uh, recently, an F-4 once in a while. And uh, if I go to Edwards, I can usually get into a T-38 or an F-4. Mm -hmm. But it's, it's becoming harder and harder to really to have the time yeah. to fly. But yeah, I miss it. I just wouldn't be flying. Mm -hmm. That's a lot more fun than sitting here. Sure. Is, is the work you're doing now related on the research side? Oh, yes. Uh, not so much to basic research, but mm -hmm. uh, I've been in the Air Force Systems Command, uh, I think, all my life. And uh, so it's not unrelated as mm -hmm. far as mm -hmm. what we're doing. Mm -hmm. uh, point rather than from a pilot standpoint. Mm -hmm.